This is the Ministers of the New Covenant radio broadcast. We come to you in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of the Most High Yahweh. Tune in each week to hear teachings directly from Scripture, focused upon believing in the Father, His Son, and the holy and righteous law of our Creator. At the end of this broadcast, we will give you the web address whereby you may contact us for further scriptural information. Well, good evening. It's great to be with you again tonight. This is Brother Matthew with the Ministers of the New Covenant Radio broadcast. If you missed last week's lesson, you can go to ministersnewcovenant.org, go to the sermon section of the site, and you can see where we've placed all of the previous radio broadcasts up for free of charge for you to listen to online or download them onto your iPod or iPhone or burn them to a CD and put them in your car and listen to them that way. So we want to get more into what we've been talking about over the past two weeks in regards to the law of Yahweh. And I know a lot of people are probably wondering, Brother Matthew, what about the writings of Paul? And I'm eventually going to get to the writings of Paul. I do believe that Paul was a true apostle of Yeshua the Messiah. I believe he was a Torah-observant man. And I don't believe that he spoke anything against the law or the prophets. I just believe he's been misunderstood and misinterpreted by the majority of people in the world today. But before we get to Paul's epistles, I want to cover something that is extremely important, and it's some groundwork for understanding a lot of the things in the epistles of Paul and even in the ministry of Yeshua the Messiah. Now, I've met professing Bible believers over the years that actually believe that Yeshua broke the Sabbath day and that he also declared that it was now okay to eat things like pork or catfish. Now, I don't believe that for one second because I believe that Yeshua was the sinless Son of God. He always observed his Father's law. He never violated Shabbat, which is the fourth commandment, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. And he did not violate the biblical dietary law based upon Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. But some people think that he did. People believe that he came to show us a new and living way, and this way is defined by them as being apart from the quote-unquote harsh law that existed during the Old Testament. Now, I don't believe that the law found in the Old Testament is harsh at all. As a matter of fact, Psalm 119 verse 45 says, I will walk at liberty for I seek thy precepts. So the law brings liberty. It does not bring bondage. Now, I think that such people begin with a crooked foundation. Uh, to build upon that kind of a foundation results in a very rickety structure. And that structure teaches that Yeshua broke the laws I've just mentioned, or at least he paved the way for others to see that these laws are not in effect any longer. Because you do have some people that won't go so far as to say that Yeshua broke the Sabbath or ate unclean or violated the Torah. But they'll say he paved the way so that somebody like Paul could come in and teach a gospel of liberation. Liberation from that old harsh bondage that the Torah brought. And once again, I think that is just utterly ridiculous. I don't even like speaking it, but I do for teaching purposes. Now, one of the reasons, among others, that people arrive at such an erroneous conclusion is because they have little, if any, knowledge of what we're going to term and what the Bible terms, the traditions of the elders that existed during the time of Yeshua. 
Now, when we read in Scripture, we find that the law of Yahweh exists in that which was written down by Moses. Yet, there are those today, as there were those in Yeshua's day, who insist that there is another Torah, another law, in addition to the written Torah. These same people explain to us that the Torah they speak of is not a Torah that was written down in the days of Moses, but was rather given orally, spoken to Moses on Mount Sinai, and then Moses passed it down orally, as did the succeeding generations after him. Thus, the people refer to this Torah as the oral Torah, or the oral law. Now, this is not to say that these people do not believe this oral Torah is written down now. Because they do. They believe that it's written down now in a form of what's called the Talmud. I'll get to that in a little bit. They do believe it was codified much later in time. But originally, it was only spoken. The ancient Israelite historian Flavius Josephus records how that the sect of the Pharisees believed in the so-called oral Torah in the days of Yeshua. The term Pharisee stems from the Hebrew word perishim, which means separated ones. The Pharisees considered themselves to be the strictest sect within the Israelite faith, over and against the Sadducees and the Essenes. Well, Josephus writes this in his work entitled Antiquities of the Jews, Book 13, Chapter 10, Part 6. He says, quote, What I would now explain is this, that the Pharisees have delivered to the people a great many observances by succession from their fathers, which are not written in the laws of Moses. And for that reason, it is that the Sadducees reject them and say that we are to esteem those observances to be obligatory, which are in the written word, but are not to observe what are derived from the tradition of our forefathers. And concerning these things, it is that great disputes and differences have arisen among them, while the Sadducees are able to persuade none but the rich, and have not the populace obsequious to them, but the Pharisees have the multitude on their side, end of quote. I want you to notice carefully that while Josephus records the Pharisees' belief in a Torah in addition to that which was written down by Moses, he also records for us that the Sadducees, or literally the Tzadokians, rejected such a notion. They believe that only those things that were written down in Scripture are obligatory to the believer in Almighty Yahweh. Now, modern-day rabbinic Jews are the continuance of the Pharisees. They believe that God not only gave Moses a law that he wrote down, but God also gave Moses an oral law that was then handed down orally to Joshua, the prophets, and eventually the Pharisees. Even this oral law had to be codified. As I mentioned earlier, it was codified beginning in the 2nd century A.D. because it came to be so large. And today this document is known by the basic title Talmud, which is a Hebrew word that literally means to study. And the Talmud consists of a very detailed and exhaustive commentary on the written Torah. So basically put, rabbinic Jews today believe that you cannot understand the written Torah without the Talmud or the oral Torah. 
They believe that the Talmud gives the specifics, while the Torah just gives broad brushstrokes. I have a good friend that was once walking through a grocery store in preparation for Yahweh's Passover festival in the springtime. This particular grocery store was one that was located in a Jewish community, so they actually had a kosher deli, a kosher fish department, and even a kosher Chinese restaurant, which is extremely good. As my friend was stocking up on things for Passover, though, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there was a Jewish man that approached him, and this particular Jewish man was marveling when he found that my friend was observing the feast. And the Jewish man then began to ask my friend about the Talmud. He said, do you study the Talmud? And my friend replied in the negative, because my friend doesn't study the Talmud. He's a believer in only the written Torah, as myself. And the response from the Jewish man was very serious. He said, friend, you cannot understand the Torah without studying the Talmud. Now, according to a modern Orthodox Jewish scholar by the name of H. Chaim Schimel, he believes that the Jewish people, quote, do not follow the literal word of the Bible, nor have they ever done so. They have been fashioned and ruled by the verbal interpretation of the written word. And that's from his book titled The Oral Law, A Study of the Rabbinic Contribution to Torah. Another rabbi, Z.H. Chahez, uh, he's a leading Jewish authority in the 1800s, states that the Talmud indicates that the words that were transmitted orally by God are more valuable than those transmitted in writing. This same rabbi goes so far as to say that allegiance to the authority of the said rabbinic tradition is binding upon all the sons of Israel. And he who does not give adherence to the unwritten law and the rabbinic tradition has no right to share the heritage of Israel. And that's in his book, The Student's Guide Through the Talmud. Mahmanides, one of the most prestigious sages in the faith of Judaism, in his introduction to his commentary on the Mishnah and also the Babylonian Talmud in the book Yebamot 102a declares that if 1,000 prophets of the status of Elijah and Elisha declared the Torah to mean one thing and yet 1,001 rabbis declared the Torah to mean something different, the final ruling is to go in accordance with the 1,001 rabbis. It's truly amazing when we look at the amount of weight that the Jewish people of today and the Pharisees of Yeshua's day gave to this oral Torah. It was as though it really didn't make much of a difference what the written Torah said. What mattered most to the Pharisees was this. What does our tradition teach? Why is there such a problem with this oral Torah to start with, though? Well, for starters, there is no mention of an oral Torah in addition to the written Torah in Scripture. Secondly, we're firmly commanded against adding to or taking away from the written Torah in passages like Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 and Deuteronomy 12 verse 32. So therefore, if we find a case in the oral Torah that adds to or takes away from that which is written, then we must dismiss or discard the oral in light of the written. And this brings us to the third point. There are cases where the oral Torah, the Talmud, 
contradicts, violates, destroys, or makes void the written Torah. Now the rabbis in Judaism even claim to have the right to change the written Torah if it was necessary. What did they use for their scriptural support? Well, they cited Psalm 119, verse 126, where it says, It is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. Now, your response, like mine, to the misuse of this verse is probably one that is wondering this. Why in the world would they quote that verse? How does that verse teach it is okay to neglect or abolish any of the Torah? Well, you're correct in this mindset, but what happened is that the passage was completely turned on its head and misinterpreted to mean this. They said that the verse meant, quote, sometimes in order to act for the Lord, it is necessary to dissolve his laws. That's in the Babylonian Talmud, book Barakot 54a. Now this is nonsense, but it is true. It is a shame that people can deny all the scriptural texts that speak of a written Torah only and do not in the slightest way imply some kind of oral Torah in addition to the written. I'll just give you a few. Exodus 24, 7 through 8. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Deuteronomy 28, 58 through 59. And Deuteronomy 30, 9 through 10. And there's many more that I could give you, but we'll stop for the sake of time. Now, all of this talk about Jewish oral tradition is very similar to many of the traditions in Christianity. Sometimes a tradition, or a lot of times, a tradition is viewed as absolute truth. And when you come against a tradition, it is looked down upon more than if you would have came against the scriptures. And oftentimes, the tradition violates the commandments. Now, not all traditions are bad or sinful. But when we violate Yahweh's commands with our traditions, it becomes a sin. When we exalt mere traditions to the status of commandments, it is also a sin. So Yeshua certainly upheld the Torah of Moses, but did he uphold the oral traditions? Well, I have to answer this question in two ways. First, if an oral tradition did not violate a commandment of the written Torah, then Yeshua could have kept the tradition and not be involved in anything sinful. Now, this is not to say that he did keep the tradition. I'm only saying that such a tradition would not be sinful in and of itself to keep if it didn't violate a Torah commandment. However, we can be assured that if a tradition ever contradicted the written Torah, Yeshua would not have followed the tradition in the least bit. He wouldn't have. Likewise, if a tradition of the Pharisees or a tradition of the oral Torah, the Talmud, was being exalted to the status quo of the written Torah, Yeshua would not be pleased. Now, the most famous case of Yeshua speaking against an aspect of the oral Torah is found in Matthew 15, 1 through 2. We read here, Then came to Yeshua scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now it appears that the Pharisees were speaking of a very well-known tradition of the elders. For instance, commentator Adam Clark comments on this phrase, tradition of the elders, in this way. He says, quote, Among the Jews, tradition signifies what is also called the oral law, which they distinguish from the written law. 
This last contains the Mosaic precepts as found in the Pentateuch. The former, the traditions of the elders, i.e. traditions or doctrines that had been successively handed down from Moses through every generation, but not committed to writing. The Jews feigned that when God gave Moses the written law, he gave him also the oral law, which is the interpretation of the former, end of quote. So what we've got here in Matthew 15 is the Pharisees asking Yeshua why his disciples did not keep the, as it's called today, the oral Torah, as it was called back then, the tradition of the elders. Now, part of this tradition was that a person must wash his hands before he eats. Now, we're not talking here about your mother asking you to wash up before you come to the dinner table. That's not what we're talking about. I still wash my hands before I eat. And I command my children <laughs> to wash their hands before they eat because they've been playing outside and they're dirty and they're sweaty and they're smelly. Right? That's not what is going on here in Matthew chapter 15. All right? What we're speaking of is a specific traditional ritual washing of the hands prior to eating. It consisted of many observances that had to be done in a very specific manner and exact order. I just want to give you a, a short description taken from the website beingjewish.com. It gives us somewhat of a realization of what probably was meant by the Pharisees saying, why do your disciples transgress this tradition by not washing their hands before they eat? There's 12 steps, according to this website, about the ritual washing of the hands. Step number one, make sure your hands are clean and dry. Number two, grasp the washing cup with your right hand. Number three, transfer the washing cup to your left hand. Number four, make a loose fist of your right hand. Number five, pour water over your right hand, enough to wet both the inside and outside of your right fist. Number six, repeat the process. Number seven, transfer the washing cup to your right hand. Number eight, pour water over your left hand, enough to wet both the inside and outside of your left fist. Number nine, repeat. Number ten, loosely cup your hands, palms upwards, as if to accept the purity. Raise your hands and recite. Baruch atah. Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, Ashir kidashanu b'mitzvosav vitzivanu al nitilas yadayim. Blessed are you, Hashem, the Master, our God, source of strength, ruler of the universe, who has made us holy, special to him, through his commandments, and commanded us concerning washing our hands. Number 11. Dry your hands perfectly. 12. Do not speak until after eating bread, except to recite the blessing over the bread, or to answer, Amen. Now, you should be able to see that what the disciples were not doing was not a violation of the written Torah. What I just gave you there in that 12-step process that people still do today, nowhere, not anywhere in the written Torah. There is nothing in the Torah that would command us to wash our hands in this fashion before we eat. Yet, to neglect to do so in the eyes of the Pharisees and in the eyes of many Jewish sages and rabbis ever since was tantamount to blasphemous. For example, listen to this. One rabbi, Rabbi Jose, says, quote, 
Whoever eats bread without washing of hands, as if, quote, whoever eats bread without washing of hands is as if he lay with a whore. And says Rabbi Eleazar, whoever despiseth washing of hands shall be rooted out of the world. Now that's from the Babylonian Talmud tractate Sota 4b. Christian commentator John Gill, in his commentary on Matthew 15.2, gives us some very eye-opening history as it pertains to this tradition being observed. He writes, quote, And to fright people into an observance of this tradition, they talk of Shibta, a sort of an evil spirit that hurts such as eat without washing their hands. They say he sits upon their hands and upon their bread and leaves something behind which is very dangerous. And it is recorded to the praise of Rabbi Akiba that he chose rather to die than to transgress this tradition. For being in prison and in want of water, what little he had, he washed his hands with it instead of drinking it. Eleazar ben Hanak was excommunicated for despising the tradition concerning washing of hands. And when he died, the Sanhedrin sent and put a great stone upon his coffin to show that he died in his excommunication. The Sanhedrin stoned his coffin. End of quote. It's unbelievable as I'm sitting here reading the quote how that people can get so wrapped up in a tradition that they would do such nonsensical things as we've just read. Now we also see that Yeshua did not see it necessary to observe this tradition himself when we examine Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 41. I've actually had some people, based on Matthew 15, try to tell me that Yeshua did observe the ritual hand washing. But his disciples didn't. And they'll say, notice that the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? They doesn't say anything about Yeshua. Well, number one, they were disciples of Yeshua. They obeyed what their master taught. Number two, Luke eleven thirty seven through 41 teaches that Yeshua did not observe the ritual hand washing. It teaches us that Yeshua was invited to a dinner by a Pharisee. But when the Pharisee saw that Yeshua did not perform the ritual washing before dinner, he was marveling. And Yeshua went on to explain that it was not needful to wash the outside of the cup in this particular traditional manner. See, Yeshua directly violated this tradition of the elders. Yeshua did not believe in this aspect of the oral Torah. To him, the idea was nothing more than fictitious. Yeshua even went on to tell the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 3-9, that they made void the commandments of God for the sake of keeping their tradition. He told them that this constituted vain worship. The word vain carries with it the meaning of something being useless or worthless. Imagine someone thinking they are worshiping the Creator. But that worship was completely for naught. That's what Yeshua was telling them. Your worship is in vain. Now with this background in mind, and I know some of these things were technical, but with this background in mind, we can see that when Yeshua was being scathed by the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders of his day for violating the Torah, it was not the Torah that he was violating, but rather it was the Torah in the minds of the Pharisees. 
the traditions of the elders. This explains what a passage like John 5.18 actually means when it says that Yeshua broke the Sabbath. And it does. John 5.18 says that Yeshua had broken the Sabbath. But it means that he broke it in the eyes of the Pharisees that saw him heal the crippled man and then tell this man to pick up his bedroll and walk. See, a similar situation takes place in Luke 13, 10 through 17, where Yeshua heals a daughter of Abraham that had been disabled by a spirit, a demonic spirit, I believe, for about 18 years. Yeshua healed this woman on a Sabbath day, and the leader of the synagogue responded to him and told Yeshua, there are six days to work, so she and anyone else can come and be healed on these six working days. But Yeshua was showing in both of these cases that it is perfectly lawful to do good on the Sabbath day, to heal, to bind, and to mend. See, the Sabbath was made to bless man. And what better day to receive even a physical healing and be loosed from the bondage of a recurring sickness or an incurable disease. Many Judahites of that day had taken things entirely too far, and people do the same thing today. I met a very nice Jewish man once whose wife would make sure to take the little switch inside the refrigerator just before the Sabbath came about. Why? Well, when you open the refrigerator up, the light automatically comes on. She said, seeing that God commanded us not to kindle a fire on the Sabbath day in Exodus 35 verse 3, she wanted to make sure that the refrigerator light did not come on. Now, I'm not going to get into an exegesis of that particular commandment in Exodus 35, but let me assure you that refrigerator lights were not in view when that law was given in Exodus. But that's where tradition has brought many people. See, the account of the washing of the hands also answers another question for us. There are those who take the parallel account found in Mark 7, 1 through 23, and they say that Yeshua was teaching that all the unclean animals were now made clean. I cannot begin to even imagine such an interpretation myself, but there are ministers in the world today that will say such. If they are correct, then that means that Yeshua would have been a sinner and unable to be the Savior. For in this time frame, in Mark 7, Yeshua was speaking under the Old Covenant and not the New Covenant. And modern day Christian theology on this issue, for the most part, teaches that the law, specifically the dietary law, was abolished in the New Covenant, but certainly not in the Old. So this one point completely thwarts such an idea that Yeshua was permitting his followers to eat swine and other abominable animals. But what was he talking about then in Mark 7? Well, we can know that Yeshua was speaking of food in the context of the first century Hebraic faith. Unclean animals like pig or camel and skunk would not even enter into Yeshua's mind nor the minds of those listening to him. See, we can also learn by the context that Yeshua was talking about eating without ritually washing your hands, that which we've been talking about tonight. Yeshua was saying that eating food, that is clean animals, without ritually washing your hands, that is obeying the tradition of the elders, prior to eating, that does not defile a person. When this food enters into the stomach, it goes through the digestive process, keeping out that which the body doesn't need and protecting and nourishing the nutrients. That which the body does not need is eliminated or goes into the draught, KJV says, purging all meats. 
Yeshua wasn't saying that all animals are clean or fit for consumption, but rather that the digestive system cleanses your body of anything that it does not need from the food you are eating. See, your digestive system purges all meats. Yeshua never violated Yahweh's law. He always kept the Sabbath, as was his custom, Luke 4.16, and he always ate clean. However, Yeshua did violate the man-made laws of the Pharisees. So these traditions of men could not condemn a person, for it was not Yahweh Almighty that gave them. And understanding this background will help us understand other writings in the New Testament epistles. There are some people, as I've said before, who feel that the Apostle Paul contradicted the Torah in numerous places in his writings and thus liberated us from the bondage of the Torah. But with this idea of the traditions of the elders, the oral Torah in our minds, we now have the ability to venture into portions of Paul's writings and see if we can correctly understand that which Paul originally intended based upon what was going on in that day with the oral traditions. So if you find this interesting, I want to make sure that you tune in next week at this same time and we'll continue to get more into why the Torah, the law of Yahweh, has not been done away with. You've been listening to the Ministers of the New Covenant radio broadcast. Our website is ministersnewcovenant.org. That's ministersnewcovenant.org. Please visit our website where you will find hundreds of audio sermons as well as videos, books, and articles explaining various doctrines in the scriptural faith. For questions, you can also call 678-347-6240. That's 678-347-6240. Thanks for listening, and according to His will, may Yahweh richly bless.